Hello and welcome to Food Systems, a podcast from the Forum for the Future of Agriculture, where we discuss ideas that can shape a sustainable food system, from farm to fork, from policy to consumers, and everything in between. I'm your host, Robert Graff, and you can find us on Twitter at Forum for Ag. These episodes will be available every other week on all major podcast platforms. Before we get started, we would like to say a quick thank you to the Forum Founding Partners, the European Landowners Organization and Syngenta, as well as the Forum Strategic Partners, Cargill, the International Union for Conservation of Nature, the Nature Conservancy, Thought for Food and the World Wildlife Fund. Please enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome back to Food Systems. Today we're talking to Chris Harbert. He's the Global Head of Carbon at Indigo Agriculture. Uh, We'll be talking about carbon farming and I also wish to note that Indigo is a supporting friend of the Forum for the Future of Agriculture. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Uh, We're going to be talking about carbon farming. I think for our listeners it might be interesting to start on the farm. So talk me through how a farmer signs up for carbon farming and what do they have to do to meet the requirements as set out by your company or others? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. Certainly, you know, they first have to decide that carbon farming is for them. You know, that's a, a major decision. We're asking them to actually make significant changes to their operation, change the way they do things. So they have to really get comfortable with a concept of carbon farming. So there's an education piece there at first. Uh, they have to qualify. So they have to be in a location where we're right now in several countries and also in um, 26 of the U.S. states. And they have to do something additional, something new. They have to add some practice to or make a, a physical change. And that's a big part of these programs is that additionality piece. Um, they have to certainly document the changes that have happened. And you know, if you don't write it down, it didn't happen sort of world that we live in with uh, with the actual recording and, and, and making carbon credits. Um, they you have a chance of being randomly soil sampled as well. Uh, they they get paid ultimately for capturing the carbon. That's the the, the entire benefit. So that's part of it. Uh, they have to participate over a number of years. So it's um, you know do something, a change in the season, and stick with it. That concept of permanence that I'm sure we'll talk more about. And then of course you know the last and most important thing for me is they have to innovate. They have to continue to innovate. And and that's the way we've designed the program is to pay for performance. So one of the most important elements there is that they um, realize and 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 as soon as they get paid the first time, they go, how could I have been paid more? How could I increase that program? And that really becomes a, a key back and forth with us in the long term is, um, you know, around the overall increasing their performance and helping them earn the most they can um, from a carbon program participation. And when you're talking about operational changes, what kind of operational changes are the most common that you, you see in the farmers that are signed up? Yeah, so you know the, the most impactful changes in terms of sequestering carbon uh, are cover cropping, where we're going in and increasing the days of greenness. You know, typical row crops um, are green on the field for somewhere between 110 and 120 days a year. Um, we want to increase that significantly. You know, there's 365 days. We'd love them to be green each day. If they're green, they're sequestering carbon. That's the best outcome we can we can possibly hope for. Um, other practices really limit the um, the loss of carbon from the soil. Uh, there's a concept of of no tillage and or reduced tillage, where uh, farmers historically have gone in and tilled pretty heavily in many parts of the world. 
Um, and what we're seeing is if you limit that tillage or eliminate the tillage, the soil, um, the, the environment of the soil and the earthworm community and all uh, bounce back in an amazing way. And that becomes a very healthy soil. Um, tillage is, is like a hurricane that comes in and, and tears up the place. And, you know, we, we have the opportunity to limit that. So, so in some cases, it's adding a new behavior like um, a cover crop. Or, or limiting. Others are change your rotational practices, plant different crops in different ways at different times. Um, those sorts of things, changing, changing major inputs to nitrogen. Nitrogen fertilizer is a huge um, uh, greenhouse gas producing uh, process in the kind of life cycle of it. But by the time it makes it to the farm, it's more about putting it down at the right time in the right amounts and, and um, adjusting that to rebalance and make sure we're doing the best uh, possible. Is there a size constraint? Is there a sort of minimum scale of operation at which it is practical for farmers to do carbon storage? Can can I do it on my, my one hectare farm here in Europe or do I have to be sort of an American Midwest farmer for it to be practical or measurable even? Yeah, so the, it's a great question. When we talk about measurable, um, as participating in Indigo program, one of the key uh, elements of that is the scale and the size. And you're part of a very large cohort and similar to a life insurance policy or a, or a retirement vehicle, you, you gain from the participation of a large pool. So a small farmer can participate as easily as a large farmer. And I, I would argue even the small farmers may have an advantage because change is difficult and change in a manageable way on a small scale, where some of the large farmers may have to make a significant decision on thousands and thousands of hectares. That could be a, a real challenge to them. Uh, overall in terms of making that decision to say, I'm going to change all of my equipment over to this sort of practice. We, we have no minimum size, uh, essentially. Uh, we, we had a minimum actually and inadvertently caused um, some challenges around um, some of the uh, disadvantaged small farmers in, in different parts of the world where they were unable to participate because of our size limitations. That was not our intent, but we removed those as a result of, of trying to be inclusive. But does that work for you from a business perspective? Because if there's, it's substantially different. If you have one giant farmer or let's say 20 small ones, there's only one farm you need to visit. There's only one farm you need to measure. Whereas if there's 20 small ones, you may need to recommend different practices. So does that impact your business side as well? Uh, it, it certainly does to a certain extent. You know, larger fields are um, have a, have a greater chance of being soil sampled. Let me back up for a second. There's there's approximately the way in which we go about um, including a farmer and the way we work with them. You know, is is largely a modeling exercise. So it's uh, it's electronic. It's a it's a piece of software that we're interacting with. So that that really scales, no matter the size of the farmer or the number of fields. Um, the element, we do soil sample approximately 10% of the fields that are in, in the program. So if that's a small farmer, there's a chance that that, that field would be sampled and that we'd have to work with them. But but it's just part of the large uh, nature of the program, really. We, we look at it all as a, a combined cost. And, and I think that, that really aligns with our, with our mission overall of we really need to make um, this opportunity available to all acres because we really need all acres to, to address the climate challenges ahead of us. Uh, certainly. I want to get back to the, the sampling in a moment, but first you said um, sometimes it's necessary for farmers to change equipment or do some investment to really get the seeds even for something like cover crops. Is the current price for carbon credits high enough for your average farmer to do these investments or is it at what price point do you need to be for, for an investment to pay off? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, and when we think about um, is the price high enough, 
I mean, in some cases, it certainly is. I mean, we have a, a massive program uh, that we started first in the United States, and it's it's working um, working quite well. And we have a number of farm over two hundred farmers that we just recently issued first payments to. So there certainly is a it's working for some, you know, at the price of today. I think there's um, and a little bit of confusion out there where carbon credits have been been thought of as a commodity, you know, a little bit. And and the challenge with that is is really as we increase the number of carbon credits that we're looking to to get, we we move further into that adoption curve of middle adopters or or those who are are, are resistant to the, these. And the credits actually, I think, ultimately because there's no physical delivery of the credit, the carbon is stored in the soil or it's abated and it's it's never created. That is um, kind of a recipe for, you know, an infrastructure, an infrastructure light approach. So we really anticipate carbon credits to go up in price is, is the, the long and the short of it. So as, as prices go up for carbon credits, um, there's a bigger opportunity. But the farmers have to be ready to capitalize on that. If, if they really want to be excellent at carbon farming three years from now, when prices are significantly higher, as we anticipate, they really need to get started. So some of this is a mix of, you know, should I get started? When do I get started? Am I am I approaching this at the right way at the right time? Um, and that's that's probably the best way to think of, of pricing. But certainly, certainly, we are excited for increased pricing to unlock more supply. And there's an just an overwhelming landslide of buyers looking to purchase the credit. So we, we know that's not the holdup. What kind of buyers are you typically looking at? Is it heavy industry, aviation? What what kind of sectors are really pushing into this idea at the moment? You know, pushing into it first, it's really the voluntary market. It's a number of tech companies, those um, consumer packaged good companies that are facing directly with with consumers. Um, those are those are the first groups. Heavy emitters certainly are are very aware of this market and are looking for for that. Um, these are offset credits. So what these are are able to do is really offset emissions that businesses are otherwise unable to uh, remove the carbon from. You know, you, you mentioned aviation. It's a great example. You have no electric jets yet that I know of, you know, so for the foreseeable future, we're going to burn jet fuel to fly around the world or deliver packages with, with aviation. Um, there's no way to offset that carbon. If you're burning it, it's legitimately, um, you know, carbon entering the atmosphere. Offsets offer us an opportunity for uh, time to pass so that new technology and more efficient ways of, of um, handling those packages and people and movement can can happen and innovation can occur. So the offset market starts as, um, you know, the, I would say the buyers of today may not be the buyers in the future. And I would actually go so far as to say, I hope our buyers of today are not our buyers of the future. And they figured out ways of, of really removing carbon from their supply chains. Well, this leads to an interesting question, because some of one of the criticisms of carbon farming is essentially it gives license to industry to continue what it does, except just to buy an offset. So how, is that something you're worried about, that the market for carbon doesn't actually lead to less emission, but sort of to a, a harm reduction rather? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a, it, it would be a concern if the demand wasn't so enormous and, and our, our reliance as a global society on, on um, you know, fossil fuels wasn't as large as it is. The, the, the availability of credits is, is drastically less, like one-fifth of the potential. If you turned every acre on Earth um, into a carbon farming and production um, capacity at, at its max, you know, you would have five times that demand needed from, from industry. So, you know, the, the, that 
is the recipe for me for a supply and demand imbalance, which means the price will go up. And if the price goes up, it'll eventually sting enough for industry potentially that they will look to ways to reduce their footprint. So I, I, I kind of trust in that supply and demand economics to ultimately um, find a balance. And, and it, particularly if we make sure that carbon credits are priced and valued correctly by society, I, I think we'll, we'll move in the right direction there. You mentioned an interesting point just now. You said, well, what if we turned every acre of farmland in the world into carbon storage? What is the sort of minimum technological underlying level that a farm needs to be at to participate in, in these programs? Yeah, the, the minimum level is that they need to be able to do some type of electronic recording. You know, and they, they have to, I, probably one of the biggest constraints is just a history with the land. You know, in, in many cases, we need a history to set up the models and establish what we call the baseline conditions to compare the new change to. That's typically three to five years of, of historic information. So if that grower doesn't have that record, it's more challenging for us to uh, help them capitalize the maximum return per acre. But outside of that, it's really then availability, some type of educational program that would inform them of what in their uh, local area would be the right type of practice to adopt that would uh, lead to carbon sequestration, lead to greater resilience in their primary agricultural crop, um, protect them maybe from the uh, the effects of climate change in some ways. So I, I think it's really about um, you know finding that that pairs is really the uh, the, the biggest friction to making this uh, a global endeavor. Uh, some of the practices you mentioned, cover crops, rotations, they may be sort of more innovative at the American side, but here in, well, where I'm speaking from in Europe, under the common agricultural policies, these have been mandatory already if you wish to receive European subsidies. Is, does that mean that you could step into the European market and not ask for additional measures because farms here are already doing it? Or if you were to apply it in Europe, what would you ask European farms to do above and beyond these existing steps? Yeah, so the, you know the the concept behind um, carbon credits, it's and it's certainly an area where the buyers are looking for and driving the the demands on the backside. So, so to your question, really, it comes back to this concept of additionality. What's new? What is a buyer of carbon credits willing to pay a farmer to do? Um, they're looking for something new, something that the farmer hasn't already been doing. Um, there's opportunities in any of these practices, and there's opportunities in new technology as well. So, for example, if a farmer's been working and doing a cover crop for many years, a switch to a multi-species cover crop or a change in the timing where there may be interseeding at the end of, of the primary crop, and making sure they're establishing or the concept of farming green where they're planting into standing um, covers, for example, um, th those efficiencies all qualify as additional in, in the construct of a carbon credit world. So... You know, there's many ways for uh, growers, even even in areas that have have long adopted these practices, to to do a little bit more. And that's a conversation I have with farmers. You know, they they, they often say, you know, I'm doing everything I can, and and really the translation of that is they're doing everything that they're comfortable doing, not necessarily everything. And 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 a, it's a business, right? At the end, they have to be profitable. They have to maintain the business sense. So they can't just do things that, that don't make financial sense at some point. Um, but it is certainly, uh, there's an opportunity almost with every farmer. I've yet to find one, e even those who've been, you know, just absolutely religious about adopting these practices through time. You know, there is a, there is a real opportunity to help them um, with some new additionality. 
Is there sort of a tiering in these rewards? I mean, some of the early gains could be quite big, as you say, cover crops, no-till. Um, those are, are highly impactful. Some of the later measures that you mentioned, interceding um, those types of practices. Is the reward all the same for the farmers? Or do you say, no, for a farmer that's really been plowing every season and they change these practices, they get more than somebody who adopts a smaller quote unquote measure like interceding. Yeah, it, it would be incremental. And it's, it's a, it, you know, the way we've set things up, it's certainly pay for performance, not pay for practice. Um, there are some programs that, that pay for practice, some government programs that, that pay for practice. And, and the, the, the challenge I have there is that that's just a, um, it's an opportunity for, um, box checking. And what I'm really trying to do is, is affect long-term change to make sure that these practices stick. The, the, the combination, a carbon credit is not just about the creation of the element, but it's also to make sure that it stays there for a very long time, or else there's a re-release to the atmosphere and we really haven't done anything. So it's, it's coupling those two together and making sure that um, that sticks. The, the performance element, I think, is, is really key to making sure that happens. Let's talk a little bit about the performance and the measuring. One of the things that, that's been difficult in this discussion about carbon farming is especially whether or not it is functionally measurable on the farm field. Do you think we're currently in a place to deliver accurate, verifiable data at the field level, not just in the top soil levels, but in the various layers? Is this something that is actually feasible and possible? A absolutely. You know, the, the science is certainly there. You know, and that's that's certainly my background, and we have a large science team at Indigo that's that's working on this. Um, it hasn't been easy, you know, but with with most science, you know, that that's um, it, it rarely is easy, you know, in, in terms of, of making these things. And and soil is particularly challenging because you can't um, can't observe it. You know, you you can observe the surface, but without digging a core or going into the soil, you really don't know what's going on. And we can use analogs and connections. The way that we've really moved forward here in a way to scale the program is we've worked with a model called uh, Daycent, and that's day and century put together. It's a, the century model on a daily time step. Great academic acronym. But, you know, this is a model that's been worked in academia for over 30 years, has been cited, you know, more than 30,000 times. Um, there's a, a researcher out of Colorado State University in the United States, um, Keith Poshchin, he's a world-renowned um, um, scientist, soil science um, and, and soil microbiologist. Um, and his group really, you know, pioneered this world of modeling. We've kind of compared that and, and linked it to uh, soil sampling records that we do extensive soil sampling collections. And we've created a hybrid between soil sampling and modeling that um, with a reasonable uncertainty uh, can actually estimate carbon credits in a, in a way so that the technology is there. You know, there's there's been a number of groups who have said, oh, MR, MRV, measurement, verification, reporting within within carbon programs is a challenge. Um, we've certainly demonstrated it's possible and we're deep into the program. So I, I think we've, we've met that hurdle. Is there an opportunity for improvement? Absolutely, as, as always with science. And, and I think as we more accurately capture in the modeling the actual work that the farmers have done, I see really advancements or improvements in our ability to pay farmers for the hard work that they've done. Well, I mean, speaking of day cents, let's talk about uh, centuries. On, on your website, it states that credits are defined as permanent if the atmospheric benefit of emission reductions are protected by the greenhouse grass uh, crediting program for the equivalent of 100 years. Is there, can we guarantee 
such a long period of, of carbon storage because if you compare a European farm field or an American one or an African one now against 100 years ago, the changes you would see would be mostly significant. Yeah, it's it's a great question, and it's it's more of a fundamental question of, you know, can we uh, make the work that we're doing today withstand the test of time? You know, and and beyond the concept of a carbon credit, can we actually drive change that sequesters additional um, atmospheric carbon dioxide or gas equivalents and and pulls those back into the soil? Can we do that in a way, and can we educate farmers in a way that? make sure that behavior sticks over the long term. You know, if we look back to historic examples, and you can go back, you know, 100 years, we're, we're talking about, um, you know, horse-drawn teams for, for plowing and planting, you know, um, and we think, well, tractors came in and tractors stuck, you know, or, um, you know, different, different crops have, have really become cultural. I think that's, that's the key is, is driving the behavior change, making sure that it sticks, that it becomes generational. And if it's tied to, um, a benefit that comes in the form of a bottom line, right? That it's profitable. If we can show and demonstrate, which we have, that the practices we're recommending, not only do they add resilience, not only do they qualify you for a carbon program, but they also drive more favorable long-term economics. Why would you go back from that? You know, and that that concept is really what gives me a lot of confidence that we can we can maintain permanence. Also, there's there's no end of new technology coming that as we think five years out and beyond, it won't go back. It'll go forward and, and help farmers capture additional carbon from there. I wanted to go back to this question about the, the profit motive, because if there's a one-off payment and the time period is 100 years, if you smear it up, say you get a $15 upfront payment, you smear it out over 100 years, that's 15 cents a year for a farmer. Is that really worth it? Or how do you incentivize farmers to keep up this this project for up to a century, essentially? Yeah, it's a great question. That the, when we think about how these programs actually are, are implemented, a new uh, practice, something new or additional that, that a farmer does is actually eligible for 10 years of continued payments. So each year that they continue that up to 10 years, they are, are getting that particular payment. So if it's a, generating a credit per acre for a cover crop, they continue that particular cover crop for 10 years, they're going to get paid for those 10 years. Um, each year for for that additional work. Um, when we think about um, the opportunity out over 100 years, and we have a number of uh, companies who are in a pipeline with us, um, you can imagine having a having a carbon program. There's just any number of new entrepreneurs who are reaching out with a new technology, a new thing a farmer could do. So I, I have a lot of confidence that in the course of 10 years, we will find additional things for the farmer to add to their practice already that'll help them sequester even more carbon that stacks in the near term, but also continues that eligibility out past 10 years, you know, and they continue to to earn on, on these programs. Well, the final questions I wanted to ask you was regarding catastrophic risk, which is really quite severe now with the uh, march of climate change. Uh, this summer, the FT reported that a number of forests in Washington and Oregon that were being used by large corporations such as Boeing to offset the carbon burned down, dust, thus destroying both the offset and releasing additional carbon. How can carbon markets ensure themselves against such catastrophic risk especially since that seems to be on, on the increase with climate change itself. Yeah, it's, I mean, that is a, an absolute tragedy, first and foremost. I mean, to think of the loss of forests at all, but then also, you know, the hopes of, of them actually sequestering carbon as well. And I, I think the real, the real tragedy there is we need everything possible. You know, I, I talk about 
carbon programs and I'm very involved in the agricultural carbon world, but I look at all carbon programs as necessary and important. You know, and when we think about that and think a little broader globally, forests, mangroves, agricultural credits, all of those are necessary. And it's, it's very important that we, um, we think about portfolio diversification for groups. So, you know, if it's, it's important for a forest program or a, a company who's buying forest credits to perhaps consider agriculture or consider mangroves or consider direct air capture to really diversify the ways in which they're purchasing offsets for an unforeseen outcome. I mean, no one, no one really forecasted that that kind of dramatic catastrophic event would have occurred. Um, so I, I think just, you know, like a retirement savings plan or a pension fund, you know, if, if those who are buying credits think about them in a diversified portfolio approach, we're protected against that. In, in the particular world of, of uh, agricultural carbon credits that I'm operating in, we are sequestering the carbon in the soil. So as long as the farmer continues to do things or they don't come in and till and massively cause a, a release, it's unlikely that this carbon would be released back to the atmosphere in the same way because those carbon stores are, are in the soil as opposed to above ground. Would you feel comfortable then putting carbon credits into certain areas of, let's say, California agriculture, where the droughts are really becoming up to the point where desert desertification even becomes a problem? Because if you're again, if you're spreading it out over 100 years, you have to look at risk zones into the future. Yeah, I mean, we can certainly model those areas and, and there's a chance there is carbon sequestration in those areas. But you know, as we think about what really drives carbon sequestration in soils, it's cooler winters and uh, lots of rainfall. So if we if we focus on areas and, and really put the right technology in the right areas, um, we, we have the chance of maximizing um, these programs in the areas where they can really make impact. But they're not going to be everywhere for, for everyone, you know, and, and we can we can work as hard as we can to unlock more what we call modeling domains so that we can go into areas where, for example, in California, where you have, um, you know, a, a real risk of, of long-term drought and look at, is, is that really a system that is able to sequester carbon if it was moved back into a grassland? Or, you know, what, what could you do if you wanted to secure um, carbon revenue from that acre? I think I'm, I'm more concerned generally about preserving the agricultural output of those very important lands, you know, to our food supply. Chris, we're coming up on the end of the podcast, and I wanted to wrap up with the same question that we ask everybody, which is if you could give one practical idea or policy suggestion to make a more sustainable food system possible, what would it be? I'm going to take carbon farming off the table because it's, that's too easy. That's the gimme. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, the most impactful thing that, that, that we could do is, is really education, you know, overall in in um, in agriculture, I, I've I taught for a number of years at University of Illinois and um, taught a class. It was a freshman class in just general agricultural production. And the lecture series ended at the end of the semester with, "Oh, and there's this crazy new thing called no-till and cover cropping. Maybe you'll learn about those in life." You know, and that was really the the, the basic way in which the course ended. And and thinking forward to saying, well, that's now what we're asking a generation of farmers to go out and really in, in implement. And I think that that really comes back to global education, leveraging electronic technologies. To, to me, if, if we could figure out the right way to make sure through the UN or, or another group to, to really go out and make sure this knowledge is getting out to um, the innovators. I mean, farmers are global innovators. They're they're survivalists and they, they make sure that the crop happens the next year 
we equip them with with better better knowledge, I think we'll end up in a great place. Chris Harbert, Global Head of Carbon at Indigo Agriculture. Thank you so much for joining Food Systems today. Oh, thank you for having me. You've been listening to an episode of Food Systems, a podcast brought to you by the Forum for the Future of Agriculture. Look for us in two weeks when we release our next episode. And in the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe on your podcast app, as well as on Twitter at Forum for Ag, for updates on this podcast, news, as well as forum events. Please check out our website, www.forumforagriculture.com, for more great content. Thank you for listening and enjoy your day.